Well, if you, uh, if you remember, we ended last Sunday's sermon with the first two verses that Natalie just read, verses 12 and 13. And I want to turn your attention to those two verses again, because in them, we really see the main idea for the whole text this morning, which is verses 12 through 18. That's what we'll be looking at. We see the main idea in those two verses. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The main idea there is that phrase, work out your own salvation. Right? With fear and trembling. Work out your, your salvation. What he's, what he's saying here is, is He's going to be filling out what does it look like for us to do that. And we've actually spent the last couple of Sundays kind of coming back to this main idea. Because this is the main idea, really, of these verses. But the, there's a broader main idea of the whole section here that, that kind of goes from the end of chapter 1 through chapter 2. And I'll point you back to that. Verse 27 of chapter 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the Gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the Gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Notice there's a similarity there uh, in, the, in the, two, the two texts. There's, a, there's, kind of a similar, there's a lot of similar language there. And I think Paul's basically sort of repeating himself. He's just using some different words to fill it out. The main idea of our passage today, work out your salvation, is a, another way of saying the main idea really of the whole section, which is live in a manner that's worthy of the Gospel. Look at who Christ is. Look at what Christ has done. Yes, He's, he's saved you. He's died on the cross for your sins. He's, he's resurrected to new life and brought you with Him. You, you belong to Him. We belong to Him by faith. But, but then look at His example. How did He live that life? How did He do what He did? He humbled Himself. He did not consider him, his equality with God something to be grasped, but he, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He was a self-giving person because he's a self-giving God. And that's, that's what Paul is pointing us to. Be, we are, we're called to be like that. This is what it's going to look like to, to work out our salvation, to live in a manner worthy of the Gospel. It's to be self-giving as Christ was self-giving, to bring glory to Him, to point to this paradoxical God who is who's not like what this world would, would assume God to be like, a taker. No, God's a giver. Even to the point of death, He's a giver. Be like that. So that, that's such an important part of what Paul's trying to say in all this. And, and again, he's going to fill out what it looks like for us to be givers. He's been doing that already for several verses. But I want to bring it up again, not just to, to remind us that that's the main idea, but also to help us think through what does it look like then to I mean, this, this work out our salvation sounds like something that we do, right? But, it, but it, it, it's followed with, for it is God who works in you. Who works in you and wills in you. That's clearly something that God does. And it brings up this important question, 
What's the relationship between God's responsibility in our, in our, our, our salvation and the, and the working out of that salvation and what's our responsibility? What does God do? And what do we do? That's actually a, an important question and it's a, it's a question that's been debated a lot over the centuries. It's a, it's a question that tends to divide how people uh, build doctrine and how they, how they worship. I mean, denominations split over things like this. What does it look like for God to work and us to work? What's this relationship between His sovereignty and our responsibility? I think it's an important thing for us to consider as well because we, we, uh, we can tend to slide towards one side or the other in sort of putting all of our eggs in, in one basket. God does everything. Well, no, no I do everything. And when we tend to do those, those things, if we slide one way or the other, we can, we can find ourselves in trouble. And I'll explain what I mean by that by trying to just highlight those two polarities. All right. So there's, there's this one side of the spectrum that would say, no, God does everything. We don't, we don't do anything. And that's, a, that's something that we might call quietism. All right? Quietism is this idea of, of just, maybe you've heard this before, let go and let God. Right? He does it all. And, and there's this sort of idea there of, of total surrender. That's another phrase that, that comes up often in the church. It comes off, up often in things like worship songs. Right? I surrender everything to you. Total surrender. And the idea behind that is that, you know, that God has to be the one. I can't do anything. I can't bring anything of value. And therefore, God has to do everything in my life. God, there's almost this sense, and I want to be careful not to go too far here because I don't, I, don't, I, don't um, I don't think people necessarily go this far, although some do, where there's almost this idea of like to be truly godly, to be truly flourishing, to be truly living the Christian life is almost as if to be possessed by the Holy Spirit. He just takes control. I abandon myself wholly unto Him, right? Now, the, 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 the issue with that is that if we take that too far, that negates our humanity, right? We're called to be, to be new men and women in Christ. We are, we are we're, we're fully alive. We become fully human when we become redeemed in Christ but we don't lose our humanity. Remember, Jesus is fully human as He's fully divine. So to be redeemed in Christ is not to become fully divine. We're not, we're not, we're not to do that. We can't do that. It also means that we, we have to retain our full humanity. right? And so if we have this mindset, and I'm saying this again because I think this can happen. It happens with some of you. I think it can happen with me sometimes too. If we have this mindset that that to be fully you know, all in for Jesus means that I've got this complete, total abandon, that, that the Spirit is just you know, fully controlling everything in my life. The problem comes when we don't feel that way. You know what I mean? That there's a legitimacy, I think, to being filled with the Spirit. We're, all, we're always filled with the Spirit. But I think there's a legitimacy to being filled with the Spirit in such a way that it it sort of changes how we feel. In other words, you might be able to relate to this. There are times when you might feel more full of the Spirit than others, right? You feel more full than others. You feel some activity of God in your life in ways that are, that are different than, than normal, right? And, and I think that's, 
That's acceptable. That's okay, right? But if your mindset is, I've got to maintain that all the time, you're going to be really disappointed because you can't. It is a work of God, but, but he's, he's not working to diminish your humanity. He's not working in such a way to make you fully abandoned all the time. We're not possessed by the Spirit. We're indwelt by Him. So if we find ourselves in, in a mindset where we've, we're pursuing that all the time, and therefore our faith falters when we don't feel it, God, where are you? God, I, I'm doubting whether I even have the Holy Spirit because I'm not feeling that, that rush of adrenaline that, that comes when I, when I have experienced that. We're relying on a feeling instead of relying on the truth. You are filled with the Spirit. You may experience that in different ways. But if, you, if you're leaning on that experience all the time, you're going to be incredibly let down because it's not sustainable. So that's, that's one danger. Let go, let God to the extreme. The other side is pietism, we might say, which is it's my responsibility to produce my own sanctification. Now again, this is different than salvation. We're not talking about who saves us. We're talking about what happens after we, we get saved. We, can, we might all agree and recognize it's, it's God's work that, that saves us. He initiates that. It's, it's Jesus' work on the cross. It's by faith alone. It's not by works that we're saved. right? But then we can get into this mindset of what then comes next and fall into a trap of it's all on me. I've got to work this thing out in such a way that, that I'm gonna, I, I, if, I, if I'm reading my Bible enough, if I'm praying enough, if I'm doing enough good deeds, then I'm going to produce my growth. If there's sin in my life, I've got to be the one who fixes that. That's a, that's a pietism. But again, the danger is that if we take that to the extreme, it can lead to moralism. It can lead to legalism. It can certainly lead to pride. I'm going to fix this. So Paul isn't, isn't going in either of those directions fully. There's a, there's a balance here to what he's saying. He's saying there's this Again, there's this paradox that's going on here. There's this relationship between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility where both of them are active together at the same time. Look again at what he says in, in the text here. He says that, that God works in you and you work out. To work out our salvation is that we are we are not increasing our righteousness. We're simply working out, outwardly, what God has already done in us inwardly. And a great text for that that kind of helps us understand that, that balance is, is Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but listen to it. You're familiar with the text. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's what you were. You were dead, right? And dead people don't do anything. You can't do anything. You're spiritually dead. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So God is the initiator of that salvation, right? 
And then he says later in the, in the passage, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. This is God working in you. Not a result of work so that you may not boast. But then he says this, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which Christ Jesus and God, so excuse me, in which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See that strange paradox and how it all kind of works together? He does this in you, but, but He does it so that you've renewed to live in such a way, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, that you do good work. Your sanctification is both God at work in you and you working out what God's doing. It's a paradox. And we've got to be content to understand these things in paradox. There's a mystery to it. Just like this whole text has been wrapped up in a mystery. How is it that God could humble Himself and take the form of a servant? How could God become flesh? How could flesh be still fully God? How could God die? It's all paradox. But He wants us to understand that as best we can. So that we, we don't go too far on one side or the other. Don't stop working out your salvation. Don't, let, don't just let, let go and let God. You're called to something. But don't spend so much time on trying to figure out how you're doing it that you, you forget that it is God who does that work. Right? So that sort of sets the scene here for the rest of the text. What does it look like then for us to work out this salvation? Remember how we've been talking about, again, it's, it's living in a manner worthy of the Gospel. It's be, being givers like Jesus is a giver. It's wrapped up in considering others more important than ourselves. It's wrapped up in the unity of the church. It's wrapped up in, in, in love for one another. He's going to continue to flesh this out in the, in the remaining verses. And the first thing that he says here is that as we work out our salvation, in other words, as we're self-giving, we do so to shine the light of Jesus. And I'm going to say this, in our city, I'm contextualizing it, but he's saying really to, to a generation out there, to the world around us, to shine the light of Jesus in our city through our Gospel unity. Look again at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. What does it look like for us to work out our salvation? The first thing is that that unity that we pursue has an aim of displaying Christ to the, to the world around us, to the community around us. He says, if you're grumbling, you're not doing that. If you're disputing with one another, you're not doing that. You're not reflecting unity. You're not reflecting self-giving love. You're not reflecting this attitude of putting others' needs and concerns as more important than your own. And in fact, I think those are two important words, grumbling and disputing. There's a difference between those words that's important that helps us kind of understand just the the, the holistic nature of Paul's concern here. 
He says, do everything without grumbling. This idea of grumbling is, we, we, we think of we sort of murmuring, right? It's not necessarily something that, that, is, um, that is directed at or received by another person. Grumbling can happen just as easily when you're all by yourself, right? When you go home from church this afternoon and there's something, something that someone said or did or something that happened in church today where you just kind of spend the rest of the afternoon going, right? So the idea here, I think, is one of, there's, a, there's, a, there's an emotional nature here. Grumbling speaks to our emotion. Whereas disputing has to do with relationship. Like that's, that's verbal, that's, that's interaction with somebody else, right? You're in active dispute with them. That speaks more to an intellectual disunity. So Paul's trying to, trying to consider holistically here and say, look, it doesn't really matter if it's, if it's on an intellectual level or if it's just kind of on an emotional level. When you are grumbling and disputing, when you have division that's at work in you, inwardly or outwardly, you can't reflect Jesus. It undoes everything about this, this, this unity and humility that Jesus brought about. He says if you're, if, you're, if you're avoiding that kind of disunity, then you are blameless and innocent children of God. You, you reflect to the world, what does it look like to really belong to Him? That phrase reminds me of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, the first couple verses of Ephesians chapter 5, when he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Because you are His children, because you belong to Him, look like Him. And he says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's the same idea, right? Imitate Him because you're His children and you'll do that by walking in love. There's no grumbling. There's no disputing. There's self-giving. So we can't be emotionally or intellectually divided as a church if we hope to be what He encourages us to be here, which is lights in the world. He says, you shine then. If, you're, if your unity is Christ-reflecting, you shine then as lights in a twisted and crooked generation. So we've been talking a lot already in the, begin- in the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 about what does it look like to reflect Jesus to one another. It's, it's very much been kind of how we, how, we dis- how we see and display Jesus in the church. But, but now Paul's reminding us that you, know, you, exist, you don't exist in a vacuum. You don't exist in a bubble. You exist in a world that needs to see Jesus. And a huge part of how they'll see Him is by the unity that you have. You will reflect Jesus to one another to the community around you when you're unified in love. Now how that happens is kind of twofold. There's going to be two reactions. And, and contextually here, I, I think what, what Paul is thinking about is he's thinking about how that, that reflects Jesus in a way that actually brings condemnation and judgment on the darkness around you. And I say that because, again, he repeats similar ideas at the end of chapter 1 and here in this text in chapter 2. Remember at the end of chapter 1, 
Verse 28, he says that, that, you're, that you're, you're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents, which is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but a clear sign to you of your salvation. And here in these verses, again, he, he, he kind of has this sort of negative outlook about the, the state of the world around. He says it's a crooked and twisted generation. That's actually, a, there's a necessary proclamation of the gospel that's at stake here. It's important that the church display something in the world that, that shows the world that it's wrong. That shows the world that it's in darkness. That when the world looks on their Twitter feed, or their Facebook feed, or the news, or they're driving down Lakeshore Drive and they're all honking at each other and the, the disunity that's just so prevalent in society is, is just coming at us from all angles that they can look at a group of people who've been redeemed by Jesus and see love and unity and charity and considering others. And, and there's something about that, that that's condemning. Like, that's good. This is not good. And yet... And saying that, nowhere in the New Testament and nowhere in our thinking should, be, should condemnation be the end of the line. That condemnation, by God's grace, should point us to the hope and the salvation that's available in Christ. Not only is that look, does that look right and this feels wrong, but I want that. Ephesians 2, as I just read, you were once in darkness. You were once taken captive, obedient to the darkness and the principalities and all of the deadness. That was who you were. But, but God in His rich mercy has redeemed you out of that. God has made you alive. Colossians 1, you have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His Son. There's a hopefulness, of course, that's available to us in Christ. And what Paul's trying to say is, you, church, are that proclamation of hope in the midst of a dark world. But if you, if you look just like them, that proclamation is cut at the ankles. We're called to reflect Christ. And how do we do it? With self-giving attitudes of love, with striving together for the faith of, of the Gospel, to be unified as His body. Think of the relationship between light and darkness. So I, this, this, this first part, I think, is kind of what he's been saying. It's, it's opposite. Light and darkness are opposite. So, so when the light shines in the darkness, it shows, it's visible, and it shows something of what, what Christ is like. Right? When you're in darkness and there's a light, you can see that light. It overcomes the darkness, right? And that, that sort of comes to the second, the second point that I want to make about the relationship between light and darkness and how we ought to see ourselves as active light in the world. Light does overcome darkness. And what it does when it overcomes darkness is it draws life to itself. And I want to give you just two examples of that in nature that, that speak to the truth of that reality. Why is it evangelistic for us to shine as lights in the world? People are drawn to the light. Here's one example. 
When, when you see a tree or a bush that's in the shade, but there's light immediately next to it, what does the tree or the bush do? How does it grow? It tries to go to the light, right? Life is drawn to light. Now, something that maybe is more relatable to you, anybody ever been to a, a cave? Like a mammoth cave? Or something like that where you go on the tour and they take you down and, and deep within the recesses of the, of the mountainside and you're, you're in some cavern and of course, you know, it's, there's all this electric, electrical light that's around and so you can see all the beauty of that. But, but did your tour guide ever take you all to a, a center room and then shut the lights off? So it's the scariest thing that you've ever experienced, right? I've had it happen twice in my life. Once at, at Mammoth Caves down in Kentucky and once at a place called Oregon Caves up in Oregon. Same thing, same experience. Light goes off. And I mean, when you're in the middle of a mountain, there's, there's no I can kind of see, right? It's pitch black. You, you do this and there's nothing, right? And the first reaction that you have is panic. If, if you're with somebody, you're like reaching. Are they still here? Am I alone? I don't want... Right? It's, it's really scary. But then the tour guide will oftentimes, in the midst of that, then, then pull out a match, right? And just and you, you, You've been used to seeing all these electric lights that have lit up this whole room, but now it's just this match. Before, you didn't really appreciate the light, right? Now, that, that little light, all of a sudden, it just it, 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 it breaks through. And what does everybody in the crowd do? This is what happened to me. I've I'm, I'm, I got to imagine this is what happens every time. Everybody kind of moves towards it. Right? Life is drawn to light. So Paul's saying, that's who you are. And your unity is the way that the light shines bright. You're, 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 you're standing together in the faith of the gospel. Your love for one another. That's how the light shines bright. And the world will notice it. That's the first thing. The second thing that working out our salvation does, this self-giving attitude, is that it brings joy to our leaders through this gospel testimony and this gospel unity. Look at verse 16. Paul says, as you, as you hold fast to the word of life, so that the day of, in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So not only as, as you're working out the salvation, are you shining as lights in the world, but, but you're, you're doing something for me, Paul's saying. You're, you're going to produce this, this moment of, of godly, righteous pride. You're, you're going to encourage me that my life wasn't for nothing. That my ministry wasn't for nothing. I didn't, I didn't run in vain. But what is it that makes Paul... Look forward to that. What is it in them that would make him say, I didn't run in vain? What's the imperative here? He says, hold fast. To what? The word of life. What does that mean? What's the word of life? Help me out here. This, this doesn't have to be completely monologue. What's the word of life? I heard Scripture. Scripture. You're right. You can say it louder. Scripture, right? Specifically, I would say, as he's been talking about, the, the centrality of the Gospel in Scripture. right? You're holding fast to this Word, Scripture of life that points to Jesus. 
And as we hold fast to this word of life, that brings me joy. That, that would make me understand that my life wasn't in vain. My, my ministry wasn't in vain. If I can see that in you with this unity and this love and this self-giving attitude, that, that at the core of it is because you're holding fast to the word. That's my pride. Why is that a work? Work out your salvation. Hold fast to the word. Why is that a work? Why does holding fast to the word require a self-giving attitude? Here's a great quote. I've, I've used this many times. I've used the phrase in this quote many times. Uh, it's from Don Carson. But he says this. It's because people don't drift towards holiness. You don't drift toward holiness. If you just sort of let go and let God, you're likely to drift away, right? Apart from grace-driven effort, that's the phrase that I I like to use a lot. Apart from grace-driven effort, people don't gravitate towards godliness. You don't gravitate towards prayer. We don't gravitate towards obedience to Scripture or faith or delight in the Lord. Rather, we drift towards compromise. And we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience. And we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition. We call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we've been liberated. Right? We have to work towards, this is part of the human responsibility, holding fast to the Word. Holding fast to the Gospel. There's a grace-driven, God works and wills this in you, effort, but you have this responsibility to use the tools of grace that God has given to you. Not your flesh, but the tools of grace to overpower sin in your life to grow, to keep reminding yourselves and equipping yourselves to live in a manner that's worthy of the Gospel. So the Word of God is central in that. The Gospel is central in that. Doctrine matters, right? And Paul's saying, this is a joy to your leaders. This is a joy to me, he's specifically saying here, who've been charged with teaching you the Gospel. To, to, who've been charged to, to impart this word of life to you with the hope that eventually you, you begin to feed yourselves, right? You mature, that you grow up and begin to, to consume and pursue that on your own. And he says it's a joy to him because he says on the day of the Lord, what happens? He's going to stand before God. He, as an apostle, he has a, as, a, as an elder in the church, every leader and elder in the church will stand before God and give an account. And so he's saying, when you're like this, that's my joy. Because I'll be able to give an account and say, my, my labor wasn't in vain. Now, I, I think that's an important thing, certainly. I mean, as a pastor, I want to say that to you too. <laughs> right? Like, that's my joy to see the body of Christ maturing in that way, holding fast to the gospel and the word of life, right? But I, but I don't want us to limit it just to apostles or elders here. 
Because I think that's a true thing to say about anyone who disciples us. Anyone who's a spiritual leader in your life. In other words, your, your self-giving love and considering others more important than yourself ought to drive you to want to say, I want to please, I want to bring joy to those who've invested in my life. That, that woman who's met with me for coffee week in and week out and just poured the Word of God into me, I want her to, to feel joy when she sees me growing. That Sunday school teacher who, who has a, you know, gathers all the kids around and, and, and from their, their youngest years just watches them and pours into them and helps them to grow and to know the Scriptures, that, 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 that Sunday school teacher would, would be proud to know that their labor wasn't in vain because the self-giving nature that's being produced in those kids through Jesus pushes them to want to say, I want to honor you, teacher, in that. It's funny here. I I was thinking about this week. There's something here that Paul's saying that's actually driving us towards being pleasers of people, which kind of strikes you as odd because you think, well, no, we're not supposed to please people right? Paul talks about that all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm here to please God, not man, right? What do the disciples say in Acts? We're here to obey God, not, not men. We're not supposed to be man-pleasers, but that's a totally different context, right? That's a totally different context. In that context, we're saying we're not going to disobey God in order to please men. This context, I think you could say very much, Paul's saying, please people, Please those who are investing you and shepherding you and over you, please them. Bring joy to them by your working out your salvation. Let them see that their ministry wasn't in vain. That's a way to give and to love one another. And then finally, he says, and I want that joy to not just be experienced by your leaders, but also by you. We work out our salvation. We We self-give for our own joy by offering our lives as a gospel sacrifice. Let's see how he finishes out the text here. Go back to verse 16. He says, Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. There's something really significant here that I want to finish with, and I hope you'll take to heart. Paul's saying, look, this self-giving, this identifying with Christ and this, this paradox of, you know, of, of, of though he's worthy of all this honor and, and praise and glory and equality with God, he, he gave of himself, he emptied himself completely for our sake. There's a joy in emulating that in the way that we minister to and love one another. If your self-giving can go to that extent, and don't get me wrong, you're not dying for anybody's sins, Right? But if you can emulate that self-giving to the point of of complete humility, there's joy in it. There's an identification with Christ in it that's joyful. And, and And the way I get that is because Paul uses this phrase that's probably not super familiar to most of us. He says, what if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering 
upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. What's a drink offering? You know, most of us who are non-Jewish probably have very little idea what that means. But a drink offering was basically where it was, it was, it was something that complemented a main offering. The, the word is lib, a libation. So let's say you're making a sacrifice. You're offering a sacrifice to the Lord. Let, let's say it's a sacrificial lamb. And as you, you make that sacrifice, that's the main offering, right? The drink offering then would be something that you would just kind of pour over the top of that. That was meant to just sort of add to uh, the, the pleasing aroma of that sacrifice. It wasn't the main sacrifice. It's, you can think of it more of like a secondary sacrifice. It's, you, you might even think of it as like a cherry on top, right? But it's not the main thing. And so Paul's saying, what if my ministry isn't the main thing? What if it's not what I have done and the labor that I've poured out that goes down as the memorable offering to God? What if I'm forgotten? What if I'm no more than just a, 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 a temporary, secondary sort of drink offering on top of the main offering, which is your, your faith? What if it's what God does in and through you that becomes the significant offering? He says, I'd rejoice. I'd be happy about that. And I want you to be happy about that too. If that's what God does in me. Remember, Paul's in prison. Paul's facing death. Paul's ministry may very well be over. It's not what he anticipated. It's not what he wanted. He wanted to keep going. He wanted to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, right? But he's saying, what if I, what if I don't? What if all that matters is what I did in Philippi? I'd be happy. Now, what would compel Paul to rejoice if his sacrifice is secondary to the brothers and sisters in the church? What would compel him to say, I'd be happy about that? The answer is humility. The answer is, here's a man who understands it's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's not about me. It's about Him. Chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what happened to me has really served to advance the Gospel. It's become known throughout the whole Imperial Guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. It's for Him. It's not about me. I think that's an important thing for us to grab onto because there's something in our DNA, right? There's something in our nature as people, even as believers, that wants to be significant. When you think about your faith, and this kind of goes back to this idea of quietism and pietism even, right? I want to be fully surrendered to you, Lord, because I want you to do great things in my life. I want to be used by you. I, want to be, I just want to be, be available and empty to you to just... I want to be Spurgeon. I want to be D.L. Moody, right? I want, to, I want to be used in that kind of way. Or I'm going, to, I'm going to strive to work really hard to be the most you know, proficient, Bible-knowing, prayerful person. I'm going, to, I'm going to work this out because I want to be significant. There's something in our DNA that wants that. 
I want to be David who slays the giant for the Lord. Now you might be. Praise God if you are. But what if you're Stephen? Do you remember Stephen in the book of Acts? He, he proclaims the gospel one time and they, they stoned him. He has a, a, a paragraph in Scripture because he immediately got taken out. Anybody want to be Stephen? Paul's saying, I would. Because you know what's unique about Stephen? He preached the gospel once and got taken out, but, but God recorded that testimony in Scripture for generations. Right? I want to point your attention, and you can go ahead and flip over there to Hebrews 11. It's page 1008 if you're using the Pew Bible. Just, just go there because we're not going to come back to Philippians 2. Hebrews 11 is a great chapter because it's, the, it's called the Hall of Faith. Right? So the writer of Hebrews is, is talking about all these great figures in Scripture, all these men and women who were who, you know, who did great things, whose faith was, was notable, who gave glory to God by their lives. And then as he finishes this list of, of kind of the, the big hitters, the Moseses and the Abrahams and, and whatnot, he gets to verse 32 of chapter 11. And he says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And if you're, if you're following along in this, you're going, yeah, yes, yes, I want to be... I want to be like that. I want my life to be like that, right? Conquering for God, seeing all these great things happen. And then you're completely blindsided and shocked by what comes next. And notice that there's not a paragraph break here. There's not even a sentence break here. Verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. Yes, some were tortured. Wait, what? Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. They were, they were martyred, right? Others suffered mocking and flogging. Even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And then the author says this, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, all of them, those who, who did great things and those who got wiped out. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. There's kind of a similar idea there. Those things that God did in their lives, some of them 
triumphant, some of them very difficult. They served us. They served others. They pointed us to faith. And by our faith, by the fullness of of God sending His Son and revealing the mystery of Christ the Messiah and the church, the global church, and all the things that God has done, all that served then to commend them. Paul's saying, what if, what if that's what you have to look forward to? What if that's what I have to look forward to? If we're like Christ, if we're giving like Christ, then, then our giving is, is going to lead us to a humility that's willing to be a libation. We're not going to be the kind of people who grumble and dispute, who sit in a corner and say, God, God's not fair to me because I didn't get to be like that person over there and I had to go through this hardship or this trial over here. We're, we're, we're. There's, that doesn't exist in a mindset that says, God, just use me for other people's growth and their joy. Even if you've got to take me out, even if I'm the next Stephen, just use me for their joy, for their growth. What if, what if it's their faith that gets highlighted before the world as a light that shines in darkness. I'm just forgotten. It's okay. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And if I'm going to look like Jesus, then then I'm going to be humble enough to say, whatever you want, Lord, bring them joy. Bring them life. Bring them peace. I had a conversation with Somebody recently, I don't remember who it was, we were talking about um, just the visibility of the ministry of, of Edgewater Baptist Church in our community and how there was, a, there was a church, a church plant that came into the community recently um, and they had a, they had a, a, a and I think it's still going on, although the, the church planters have left, but they had a ministry over at Swift Elementary School that was you know, really pouring, kind of like safe place, doing after school ministry and, and just kind of really trying to be lights in, in the midst of darkness. And when the church planters left, the alderman's office actually put a monument, a plaque to them and the church on the, the pillars of the Thorndale Red Line tracks. So if you go under Thorndale, you see that the community has, has named these the four pillars of Edgewater, and they will honor people by putting their names up there if, they, if they've been a pillar in the community. So it's kind of cool, right? These church planters, their names get put up there as pillars of the community as they were, as they were leaving the city. And it made, me th- it made me think about, like, well, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be cool? Who wouldn't want to have their name written and a monument. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be great for me to say that 30 years from now, there's a, there's a plaque out front here on the corner of Hollywood and Glenwood that says, you know, thank you, Pastor Bill, for all the incredible ministry that, that, that you were able to do here at the church and, and, and look at all the ways that, that God used you to do these incredible, wonderful things. I mean, okay, that, I mean, sure, that'd be fantastic, right? However, what if there's no monument which is likely. 
What if there was a plaque that just said, here lies Pastor Bill. He served here for about 10 years and he just got completely annihilated. He got stoned for his faith. He, you know, like it, that was it. It was over. You know? But if the church was still here and the people of God here were, were still growing in their faith, could I say, that brings me joy. And I hope so. And I think that's what Paul's encouraging us all to be like. The paradox of God. This one who's worthy, giving of himself, is the image we were created to live in. To give, to give, to give. To make his name great. This is what he's like. To empty ourselves for the sake of others and for his sake. That's where we find our joy. That's what pleases God. That's what you were made for. That's what it looks like to work out your salvation with fear and trembling given to us. Thank you for, the again, the example of Jesus. Everything that revolves around Him. Thank you for a few weeks to just kind of dwell on what you've said to us here in Philippians chapter 2. And Lord, I pray that as, as we just acknowledge that, that we believe in Your sovereignty, that You are a God who works in us and wills in us, that You've also given us a responsibility. So Lord, help us to take that responsibility seriously. Even as we depend on Your sovereignty, as we depend on the power of Your Holy Spirit, help us to take seriously our responsibility to pursue holding fast to the Word of life, loving one another, unity in the faith, a self-giving attitude, Lord, that we may truly be a light in this world. That we may truly bring joy to one another as we sacrifice ourselves for the betterment of our brothers and sisters. Lord, may, may we have that sweet aroma of a drink offering in Your nostrils. Be pleased with us and be glorified here. Be visible because your people are here. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.